0: Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and today I'm going to be talking to Polly Puller. Polly is a nature photographer, writer, wildlife wildlife rehabilitator. Try saying that with a lisp. And I cannot wait to talk to her. But before that, I'm going to actually do something a little bit different this time and talk a little bit about my setup because I've had a few people message me asking, how am I actually doing all of this? So I use a Yeti Blue mic and obviously microphones are incredibly important for podcasts. And I think the sound comes pretty clear on this so I'm really really happy with that. So if you're recording a voiceover or you're recording a podcast yourself, can't recommend the Yeti Blue mic enough. I also have a popper stopper which stops the pops uh, standing out so much and it's just like a little wiry thing that I put in front of the mic. I keep relatively close to the mic, just so the sound is nice and clear and it can be picked up. And I'm recording in my bedroom, which isn't ideal for acoustics, though once I get my office up and running, uh, that'll be my base of operations. And I've got some ideas that I wanna do uh, with that, just to make the video side of these podcasts a little bit more interesting by using better quality cameras and playing around. So that's something to look forward to. Um, I record the interview on Zoom. Zoom's what I use uh, for the YouTube side again, both audio and video, obviously the audio goes on the podcast, and then the highlights of the video, that goes on the Wildlife Exposed TV YouTube channel. So check that out if you want to see the highlights of each podcast. I edit it all on Audacity, and then schedule it via Podbean, and it goes out onto iTunes and Spotify as well. So there's lots of different ways that you can listen to it. So I don't go overboard with it. You know, I edit the podcast where I'll take out little bits and bobs, But it's kind of rough and ready, and that's how I like the style. So you you might hear me cock up every now and again, uh, but I just leave it in there. Or you might hear my dog barking or something like that, but I leave it all in. I just think it's kind of characterful. Maybe that's a cover of me being lazy. Who knows? But on to my interview today, I had the pleasure of meeting Polly Puller at the Grant Arms Wildlife Book Festival last year, and she was an absolute delight to talk to. So I was equally thrilled when she agreed to come on my podcast. She's written eight books and is a wildlife photographer, rehabilitator, said that very slowly. Then and conservationist to name a few. Here's how we got on. So thanks for joining me, Polly.
1: Not at all. Really looking forward to having a chat with you.
0: Yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, it has. And uh, of course, we missed that lovely book festival this year. You know, I was looking forward to going again, and um, but it was all cancelled just about the day before all this
0: yeah it's a shame how this has kind of ruined mm. things like that but we 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 strongly, you did a, a book uh, a book fair didn't you did you do an online one am i right in yes, thinking
1: that um well we do a book festival at malik um i write highland hooli which is in november so we haven't still haven't taken the decision as to whether we're going to go ahead this year all the authors are in place i don't think we're big enough yet probably to do it online but we'll see what happens right. you know we could have to cancel that too but we'll just remain optimistic
0: Yes. Yeah. You never know. You never know. Um, I'm going to start with your time in Andy Merkin, uh, and in particular your interest in pie martins, which were the subject of your book, uh, A Richness of Martins. So, what what attracts you to this mustelid?
1: Well, I'm attracted to all wildlife, really. Um, you know, mustelids are fantastic because they're such a lithe and energetic and extraordinary little predators and I've always had huge admiration for them but when I was a child growing up in Oregon American so at the end of the 1960s there were no pine martens there which is really extraordinary to think of now but there were lots of wildcats still there which is amazing but no pine martens and the first pine martin I ever saw was a dead one it was brought in a game bag into the public bar of my parents hotel in Kilhoen And I just was absolutely intrigued by this because it was so different to the ferrets and things I'd seen. People said it was either a ferret or a mink. They really didn't know what it was. And then one of the old crofters said, oh, I think it might be a marten cat. And I would have been about seven or eight then. And I just have been fascinated by them ever since and was always really keen to see them. And it took quite a long time before I started seeing them regularly. So Merkin has now become an amazing stronghold for them. So it's extraordinary how now there's no wildcats in Merkin, but there are pine martens, so things have all changed.
0: It's sort of reversed, unfortunately, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. But I mean, uh, it's they were so persecuted. I mean, wildcats were persecuted too in Merkin, but pine martens were just had been driven right out. Uh, they were, everyone said they ripped sheep's throats out you know these were little animals that people had seen them ripping out the throats of sheep and I always used to think my god what were the people imbibing you know were they on <laughs> you know, some sort of wacky backy or sort of <laughs> homemade grog that they were still and you know legal stills or magic mushrooms I mean we're talking about an animal the size of a sort of cat a small cat and you know really to rip a sheep's throat out I don't think so they're it just, not angels.
0: No, and it does surprise me the size of them. I mean, I, I suppose that's about accurate, isn't it, the size of a small cat? But I, um, I saw some at a hide in the Cairngorms. I is it side Hides? They do like little nighttime...
1: Um, yeah, there's lots of hides. There's, there's a few that
0: do it, isn't yeah. it? And yeah, yeah it, they come in close and take the egg and whatnot. And yeah, I mean, it's probably... It's, I mean, I've got a very small dog. I've got a sausage dog. But it was about the size of my dog. And I was like, God, they you know... The
1: dog is probably quite a good, you know, it's a different shape. <laughs> A yeah. dog maybe has a little bit more weight involved. A pine yeah. martin is all muscle, but yeah, yeah I not really see very many very
0: fat pine martens. So, did they come back on their own to Ardenburton, or did they, so I, or were they reintroduced?
1: No, they weren't reintroduced. I think what happened was uh, the law came in. The Wildlife and Countryside Act was protecting them, and so you know they weren't persecuted to the same degree. I think also the influx of huge amounts of forestry, blanket forestry, which didn't really suit other wildlife, but it did quite suit things like pine martens because it could hide away in that forestry. I mean, it's caused such terrible problems, uh, commercial forestry, but for the pine martin, I think it's, and for things like the fox as well, it's been quite a beneficial thing. And when that um, forestry was beginning to grow, there was fantastic habitat for small mammals before it got really enclosed. So pine martens were able to make quite a good recovery, I think. And, and I think the, just the lack of persecution has really uh, you know, changed things for the pine martin.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, hopefully we'll get them back in England in numbers at some point. Because, I mean, a lot of people associate them as a Scottish species, but historically they were all across they, the British Isles. Yes,
1: yeah, so, absolutely. And I think they're doing quite well in some parts of um, Wales. And they are, aren't they back in the Forest of Dean?
0: That, that, yeah, that's right. I think... Uh, I can't remember if it was end of last year, beginning of this year, they they reintroduced a few. Um, And I know there are kind of unofficial pockets in some of the parts of the, of of England as well. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully we'll get, I'd love to see them, but you know, they can chomp on some of the grey squirrels hopefully as well
1: they were amazing. I think the Vincent Wildlife Trust are doing a very good job with translocations. And I think they've been taking them from certain areas, you know, under license. And I think they're doing a terrific job. They did a fantastic job with otters. They've worked with all sorts of amazing species. Um, They're a great organization. I've always been full of admiration for them. But I think that that's because of their work that they're. Uh, re-establishing down south. And I think people just love to see them. There's something sort of, sort of mystical and magical about pine martens and the fact that they like people, well, not like people, but interact with people, you know, they'll come into your garden and, and I mean, extraordinary, they like strawberry jam and um, you know, peanut. <laughs>
0: well, who doesn't?
1: Yeah, exactly. And um, friends in Arden American who I wrote about, Les and Chris Humphreys, I mean, she bakes Victoria sponges for her pine martens every day.
0: Oh, I might I might turn up in a garden as well then.
1: Yes, I think it would be fantastic. <laughs> so it is extraordinary. They are so Catholic in their diet. I mean, you know, originally we thought it was just that they just ate hens and red squirrels, but actually that's completely not the case.
0: They'll anything that goes, they'll kind of have a have a go for, will they?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean they do go into we had one in the hen house um about 10 years ago. We had a wee hole in the hen house we didn't know was there. Pine Martin went in, to obviously, nicked some eggs and wiped everybody out. I think it's typical sort of muster when there's a sort of cacophony of panicking hens. Then the Pine Martin goes into a frenzy and just kills, you know. So, but um, I'm very philosophical about it. If they take the, my hens through the day, well, that's just bad luck. But we do shut everybody in and we shut everybody in pretty early here because we have Pine Martins, foxes, badgers, otters. Yeah. The odd mink, but very few mink, thankfully. Yeah. So there's a lot of things waiting to uh, have a chicken takeaway.
0: And and the title of your book, a richness of martins, is is that the collective term for pie martins? Yes.
1: yes, it is. And actually, the publisher was really keen to have that. And my next book that I'm supposed to be working on at the moment, but seem to be on a bit of a ghost, slope, <laughs> because of the lovely weather. Uh, the next book is going to be called A Scurry of Squirrels um, about red squirrels. So I'm sort of should get on with that.
0: Well I'm glad you've mentioned that because that leads me nicely to my next question because your other love is red squirrels of course. So what is it about red squirrels that just fascinates you?
1: Well I think actually um, somebody said to me the other day what is your favourite animal and I think the key, the answer to that is what I happen to be looking at at that moment. I mean yesterday I was having a complete love affair with mountain pansies which are you know some. it just depends wildlife wise water and flowers and anything but red squirrels are particularly lovely they're so i don't know they're playful they're mischievous they're they're just extraordinary little things i suppose as a child i was the archetypal child who loved um, all the beatrix potter books and uh, squirrel nutkin was particularly characterful and a bit of a devil you know so and i love that <laughs> People did, um, red squirrels are just absolutely um angelic but they're not they're really not. I mean, I've watched them <laughs> taking uh, blackbird chicks out of nests. And um, I mean, you know, they, they're, they're not just angels.
0: <laughs> they're, put, they're putting but, it on. They're putting a facade on.
1: Yes, they are. <laughs> and I always laugh because when I have hedgehogs, because I'm mad on hedgehogs too. And people say, well, don't you have a lot of fleas with hedgehogs? And actually, to be honest with you, I think red squirrels have far more fleas than hedgehogs. Absolutely positive with them.
0: Is that right? Yes. Oh no. A
1: of years ago we were hand rearing some babies which were only three or four days old when they arrived. And they were covered in fleas. I mean they were bald, you know, and eyes shut and everything, but still flea ridden. And I wouldn't put flea powder on something that young because it's adding more stress to something that's already in dire straits. But usually the fleas just disappear after a couple of days. We never quite know where they go, but they disappear.
0: <laughs> you saw you end it, up scratching a little bit.
1: Well, they don't bite us, but this particular night, I got up in the middle of the night to feed them and had sneaked back to bed. And Eva, my partner, was lying uh, breathing heavily beside me. And as I got into bed, I felt something crawling on my arm. And I thought, oh God. And I sort of slapped it, and then quietly. And then my slaps got more frenetic. And then after a <laughs> wee while, Eva said, We're not alone, are we? <laughs> <And laughs> heart- yeah. Gone, sorry. sorry. We had to leap out of bed and pull the bedding back and have a look to see where these fleas were. And he was not amused to have fleas <laughs> in his bed.
0: <laughs> they're hard as nails, aren't they? I know when my uh, my dogs had fleas in the past. Like you, you can't. You try and squeeze them between your. I shouldn't advocate squeezing any animal, really. But you try and get rid of the squee uh, The the fleas and uh, yeah, it doesn't phase them. They're so tough. I
1: know <laughs> they're amazing. But did you do you get bitten by your dog fleas? Because I never get bitten by. Um...
0: No, I mean, she's not, uh, she's not flea ridden, to be fair. So we do treat her for stuff like that. But um, I get the odd bite. But I, you know, how do you know, it's a flea, I suppose, unless you kind of actually see it biting you. But um, I was told they're quite Catholic in their diet. They don't. Um, I think they prefer cat blood and, and mammals like that. They don't really go for people as much.
1: No, well, I think they're all that every flea has a particular host. You know. Yeah. So, uh... You know, obviously, hedgehog fleas and things like that, but it's just the thought of it, isn't it? Really, in that particular
0: feeling. I'm. You know, <laughs> I, I can appreciate the biology of a parasite, but I'm not a fan of parasite I've had over the years, I've had ticks and all kinds of weird and wonderful things attached to me. So
1: like, wonderful! They're so fascinating.
0: What ticks?
1: <laughs> oh, fascinating oh. and so, but horrible, horrible things. But um, <laughs> I had a, have a red deer here, a um, uh, hind, who I've had now for ten years. She's just about to have her tenth birthday and she came to us as a 10 day old calf and she had over 200 bloated sheep ticks on her
0: wow
1: I totally and i know that because a belgian vet and i picked all these ticks off it was quite shocking actually there,
0: there's a there's a problem in uh in north america with ticks where there's so many ticks on some of the moose that they become almost anemic because they're draining that much blood off them it's so oh, a, a huge problem i think it's because their summers are getting warmer Although winters are getting milder, sorry. And the ticks would normally die off in the winter. Um, so they're having massive tick problems. And it's a problem uh, across the world, really, with, with ticks. I yeah, mean, but, uh, You yeah. know, it's all part of nature. Ticks are, should be there. But in huge numbers, they can be, a,
1: can be an issue. Oh, awful. Yeah, and they do carry so many horrible, insidious diseases.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And you mentioned uh, about how you, you look after wildlife and you rehabilitate wildlife. So where did all that start?
1: Well, um, I think it started, we always laugh about it, when I was little, one of my favourite television programmes was something called Daktari, and you're probably too young to remember that.
0: But it I'm, was not a, gonna, I'm not going to pretend to know what that is.
1: <laughs> it was a wonderful um, programme set in Africa, where there was a, this amazing vet and his daughter, and they went around the bush and rescued all these things, and they had a, a pet lion called Clarence um, cross-eyed lion and they had a chimpanzee called Judy and all these things and they were always rushing around the bush you know doing amazing rescues and so I always wanted to be a vet and I still would love to be a vet but just have absolutely no scientific brain whatsoever <laughs> and um, so really it all started with that and my mother used to often bring in ailing wildlife and As a child, I was always running around the undergrowth looking for needy fledglings or road casualty hedgehogs and things. And uh, it's just really grown from that. And then I started taking things in. It started off really with um, tawny owls, um, and they remain one of my most favourite birds of all. And kestrels. It's quite interesting now, looking through my record books, when I started doing rehab, so when I was in my mid-teens, when I started doing it on a serious way, um, and kestrels were one of my most frequent casualties, and now it's in the last five years I've had one kestrel handed in. It's extraordinary.
0: So you're really. taking that as a sign? Sorry, you're taking that as a sign of, of a a decline in kestrels in your area, then?
1: Massive. Well, not in our in, in Scotland really, because you know it wasn't always in this particular area. Yeah.
0: yeah. I had an
1: interesting patient this morning and it was very sad because we had to put it to sleep. Um, it was the first time I'd ever had a tree pipit handed in. A oh, wow. An absolutely enchanting wee bird. And I felt so sorry that I couldn't do anything for it, but its wing was literally hanging off. So um, shame. But what a lovely wee bird in the hand.
0: What had happened to it? Do you know?
1: I don't know. Somebody yeah. just found it on a, on a path. So whether uh. it had crash landed or something had had it I don't know it didn't have any other injuries just to broken wing
0: so uh, you've so you've got lots of mm-hmm. feathers to your cap to kind of not put a pun to it but you know you're a, you're a naturalist you're a conservationist you're a writer photographer uh, do you find that there's one that kind of is your is your main uh, interest or is it a case that they all kind of add up to make who Polly is?
1: I think that's a very good summary of it but I sometimes think if I concentrated on one I might be better at it you know I mean perhaps if I spread things across perhaps if I was just a writer or just well certainly on the photography front you know I take pictures because I love taking pictures but my technical abilities are appalling. the first to admit that but uh, and writing you know I, I can't, I'm hopeless with commas <laughs> but yet I've been writing for forever and ever and ever so it's funny I just I think it all goes together to be honest and it's all because the rehab gives me stories to write about for, and I think the red squirrels you see really the power that when you are telling the stories about getting them back to the wild, the power that has with connecting people to nature. And I suppose it was only fairly recently. I really thought actually all my life, I've um, unwittingly been trying to connect people to nature. And I think that's probably my, my life's work is that trying to make people see and appreciate, and you will appreciate that with all the wonderful things you see with your fish and underwater and seeing your pictures immediately makes me think wow you know so you are making that getting allowing people to make that connection and i think that's something really really important for us isn't it
0: yeah i i like to think that you know people are in maybe not inspired that's probably putting too much emphasis but just people see see my work and it makes them think oh you know next time i'm walking along a river i might take a little bit more notice of what's scurrying around um scurrying around down there but we we talked because we had a quick chat yesterday and we talked a little bit about this but i also think that in, in the current climate, with the pandemic going on, it's quite useful having uh, lots of different feathers in your cap because it means okay. that you're not, not not so reliant on on one of them.
1: I know, and I think I'm so relieved and um, grateful for having the kind of background in childhood because it does make you much more resilient that you've got things to do. In fact, I thought, well, I'm going to get so much more written work done, and I did to begin with, but now oh, the weather's been so good and you want to go out and take photographs and do this and go and birdwatch. So, yes, it's, it, it is fantastic having these things. And sometimes you feel rather guilty because you know there's so many other people in a far less fortunate situation people yeah. who haven't grown their own vegetables and done things like that i mean we do it every year mostly for the slugs benefit but yeah. <laughs> well,
0: so, some of my friends uh run more kind of on the workshop basis where they're teaching photography or their guides and obviously you know this is kind of scuppered them completely so they oh, sat you. twiddling their thumbs whereas yeah i'm quite grateful that i i do a little bit of everything where it is that a little bit of writing like you um and things that I can do from home. So I yeah. think it does definitely pay to be versatile and, and not not throw everything <laughs> into one camp.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I've always been able to turn my hand to lots and lots of different things as long as they're not too scientific.
0: <laughs> no i know I'm, i've I've got a very broad natural history knowledge but yeah i don't know the everything about everything it's more of a kind of
1: no i think it's a little a, about a lot isn't
0: yes it? yeah yeah that's a good way of describing it definitely now,
1: see, the more you um t- spend time in nature i just come home and i think wow there's just so much to learn you know and somebody will phone up and say you're an owl expert and i'll say no actually i'm not you know you owls have i've made a bit of a name for myself i suppose with tawny owls in particular taking them in and hacking them back but you the more you do the more you realize you know nothing really
0: yeah yeah definitely Mm -hmm. I mean it's one of the fantastic things I've enjoyed about doing this podcast is every time I'm talking to someone I learn something new every person I've interviewed is imparting a little bit of knowledge and I'm like oh I never I never knew that so you know uh, I did an interview with a a woman called Victoria Hillman he's a macro photographer and she said uh, Britain is one of the (laughs) few places in the world that differentiates toads and frogs. Everywhere else, they're just frogs. But we have really? names. That, yeah, and I never knew that. They said, so if you go to, I don't know, France or Spain, they're just all frogs. But it's only in the UK where we've uh, kind of separated them. And I guess it's because toads are seen as uh, almost a like there's kind of known for all kind of darker things. And frogs are more kind of happy in uh, fairy tales and whatever. I don't know, it's a weird thing. So just little snippets like that. You and I
1: have frogs in common, frogs and toads, because you're passionate about them as well, aren't you? I love my
0: frogs, yeah.
1: I'm absolutely mad on them. And when the, um, the frog and toad season is on, I find myself saying to people, no, I'm sorry, I've got a meeting. Um, which <laughs> because I need to go to the pond and have my annual frog fix. I just love that fornicating frenzy. And it's just, oh, they're just brilliant. And they're so beautiful. The colours are so different. You know, you can have... 50 frogs and every colour is totally different. There's a little shades of brown and greens and oranges and yellows and other wonderful things. So well,
0: beautiful. I've had my pond for about 15 years now and each year I rec- not. Well, I do recognise frogs. Each frog's got different patterns. So you're like, oh, there's that one, that one's come back and that one's come back. And it is quite nice. They're like old friends in a way. You see them come back. And um, I, I was talking to you, like a cat got one of my frogs the other day and I was, I was so upset. I was invested in this. I've been seeing this frog for the last two months out in my pond and uh, called it Pat. I'm, in, I'm, starting, I'm getting to the point where I'm naming the animals in my garden because I'm spending that much time with them. And I was so upset when I saw this cat catch it. And then he came back a week later. So I like to think he's been on this adventure for all the gardens. I can only assume the cat took it back to its owner and they just let it go. But it found its way back and Pat's none the worse for wear sitting in my pond. So I, I had a rush of joy. Uh, and it just shows how invested you can become. To, to the wildlife yeah.
1: you know uh, we've got tony owls nesting in the chimney which is about uh six feet from our house so in the old bothy next to us and oh the activity at the moment is incredible and the noise and there's all these <laughs> things winging in so i think there'll be some babies coming out any day we've got three barn owlets we're rearing at the moment too which are just absolutely brilliant so keeping you nice adopted. and busy oh yeah it's just <laughs> thinking, really yeah
0: so is it fair to call you a journalist? I was going to say a journalist. Is it fair to call you a journalist? You've done journalistic work in the past, haven't you?
1: All the, full, yeah, I do. I mean, yeah, it's, my, yeah. it's my main job. You okay. know, I do five, and, five magazine pieces a month, so it's quite a lot. And, and it's diverse, very diverse um, reading material if you see what sort of mean, different audiences.
0: So, my question is you, you must have reported on many nature, sto- uh, many nature stories. Have there ever yeah. been times when you've had to investigate something that's maybe clashed with your own
1: uh, morals or
0: interests? Yeah,
1: all the time, all the time. Um, and I think sometimes when I used to work for one particular magazine, I would often have to write about something uh, sort of shooting the con- controversy between shooting and conservation. And there's just such a big gap with that, you know, that people don't speak a lot of the time. I think the most important thing is to listen to both sides of an argument and both stories. and if I really have strong views either way, then I really, really try um, to put those aside and just, as long as it isn't coming across as if it's my view, if it's somebody else, I'm very happy to just let them I'll be the, the the vehicle to get the words out. But because it is important to hear both sides of everything. And I grew up in a, an environment in Arden and Merking where, um, you know, you you did shoot things for the pot and you went out and you did, th- you know, and things did get culled. black back gulls used to be a nuisance with sheep and, and crofters would go and pot them off and things like that. So And then my some of my family were very keen on shooting. I mean, I'm just completely against that now, but it doesn't mean to say I can't understand that some people... Well, like you have to listen to both sides of the argument and of course here there's all this huge controversy with beavers you know and yes I was, yeah I mean, we're surrounded by beavers here and um i saw something on um a community web page this morning which is concerning me is that somebody has posted a whole lot of stuff saying that beavers attack children so we're going to have to get on top of that because you know they don't need bad press it's bad enough as it is really
0: It's the trouble with with social media in a way, isn't it? It's a double edged sword because you can promote good messages very quickly and very easily. But, you know, to kind of quote Donald Trump, the whole fake news, um, people can post something like that. And then within a very short period, uh, everyone thinks, oh, beavers, you know, hurt children. And when it's obviously not the case, but people are just going to take that for gospel.
1: I know. And that's the problem. And I mean, it's, people still tell me that red squirrels hibernate. So, I mean, you know, people don't, you know, they often spread things which really aren't true. So to go back to your question about writing about things, it is important to listen to other people. But I, but I think sometimes I do struggle and I'm not ever prepared to put a very heated argument out from myself because I think sometimes the way you make connections is, is to listen and it's to hear i mean sometimes i get so upset about some of the things you know the raptor persecution really infuriates and upsets me um but you know it's it's very difficult it's really really difficult and I just don't know if we're going to resolve it I'm sure Isla will have lots to say on the matter because she has studied that she's studied that conflict so yes for her in a podcast I think she said you were doing that today too
0: yes yeah so Isla's going to be talking precisely about that the conflict between yeah. um, conservationists and gamekeepers but it
1: is difficult because the two sides are so um but it can't go on. You know, um, I feel very, very strongly that it can't go on. We can't go on annihilating our wildlife. We've got to start changing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a tricky, yeah. tricky issue.
1: It's not going to go overnight. You know, we've got a lot of work to do.
0: But it is yeah.
1: important as if you want is to have a bit of a balance. You've got to understand both sides of people's argument.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, I think that's what she did very well and that's where she kind of got in there. So that'll be, it'll be interesting to hear her podcast. So that's going to be out uh, the week after yours, I think. So anyone listening to this, the next podcast will be about the conflict there.
1: Um, I think it's great. And I love the title (laughs) of your podcast. I think the bearded tits, you know, when (laughs) I first met you, Jack, I thought there's a guy who doesn't take himself too seriously, but it's seriously good. So that was was a good title.
0: No, well, I I try and add a bit of humour and uh, and not take myself seriously because wildlife can be a little bit stuffy at times, um, oh, and I yeah. just try and introduce a little bit more of a lighthearted viewpoint um, on I don't it all. Think it's really,
1: important to do that. Yeah,
0: I'm going to end on this last question for you. So, you've worked with many iconic Scottish creatures. Um, is there one that you haven't written a book about? So I know you've done pine martins. You're doing red squirrels. Is there one that you'd like to write a book about?
1: Well, I did Fauna Scotica, which was an awful little about an awful lot of yeah. all you know, Scotland's animals and birds. And I suppose, you no, know, I just finished a memoir, which has been really, really a long journey. And um, there's a lot of wildlife things in that as well as lots of personal stuff. So I'm sort of slightly written out at the moment. I think when I can do a half-decent job on the Red Squirrel book, I'll be well pleased. I suppose I would love to have written a book on tawny owls and owls in general, but having said that, the market is fairly saturated with owl books, personal owl stories, as well as scientific ones. So there's nothing else writing-wise at the moment that I really want to cover. I mean, you say iconic species. I mean, everything our wildlife is so fabulous. It just—I mean, even the little dunick. Take the wee dunick that comes to the garden, and lots of people in towns will be able to see now. Country town everywhere. I mean, there's a little bird with an extraordinary life that people don't know about. I mean, do you know about dunicks?
0: I don't know a lot. If I told, I know some people call them hedge sparrows. I know they're not a sparrow, but that's another name for them. But I told
1: I, you that they had a menage a trois. And it's one female with two males, and uh, there's a lot of skulking in the undergrowth, and um, one male will mate with the female, and then the other one will come along and uh, deal with what has been mated with, and uh, peck, peck out the sperm from the cloaca of the female, and then he will mate with her. So the wee female dunnock, that little brown, so-called boring little bird, doesn't know who her father of her children is. So, well, I mean wildlife you know you talk about iconic things and we're very focused on the big things but the wee things are fantastic too
0: well so, I, so when i really sorry when i interviewed uh stephen moss he we were talking about this he did a book about the wren and obviously yes, that's I
1: love that book
0: and it's and uh, basically what you've just described it's not the first bird you'd think of to write a book about this little brown jobby but people i, I think it did really well he was really happy with it and it just he goes did, to show you exactly. can do it
1: it's a lovely production. I love the pictures and it was, it was very good. I, I um, enjoyed a lot of the stories in there. In fact, I gave him a story for that book because when I used to, go, um, I was a groom working with a lot of Highland ponies for a while and I used to go over to the blacksmith for these Highland ponies and the old um, blacksmith was quite a character. And there was a, a hook of horseshoes and the wren had used this, the formation of the horseshoes to build its lovely little mossy nest. And the blacksmith had just left um, those, that size of horseshoe on the wall until the wren had fledged all her chicks. And it was so funny. It's amazing. Lovely. They're they beautiful are. little birds.
0: They are, yeah. I don't think they get quite the uh, appreciation they deserve.
1: No, but there's so many things that are just fascinating when you start to look up at them close. You know. Bullfinch is in the garden this morning having a go at the apple blossom. Wow, there's the, the males are stunning at the moment, just in their full breeding outfit. It's really lovely. Something lovely to know. watch.
0: They're phenomenal. I do. I do love a bullfinch. I can't fault them on that. Um, what about it's... male blackbirds singing at the moment? Have you got them singing with you? Um, I think they must be. I mean, I must admit, I'm missing the dawn chorus most mornings, and I should get up really. Uh-huh. Is that because <laughs> you're lying in your bed? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I've got no excuse because obviously I'm not. I'm not exactly swamped with work at the moment, so I should get up and and breathe it in. But there are a pair of blackbirds um, that come into my garden and every now and again, so. I should come and listen to him, really.
1: Yeah. At the moment, are you in Nottingham? Or...
0: Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I, I'm i in uh, Nottingham, just outside of the city centre. So it's not too busy where I am. It's kind of s- suburban to a degree. But uh, I never used to think I got that many birds in my garden. But because I've spent two months just staring out, I'm starting to establish characters. So there's starlings that go and pick out all the crane fly larvae out my lawn. And there's some great tits nesting at the bottom of the garden. So... I get, get a, a little bit of urban wildlife. Not huge amounts, but a bit. That's well, great. look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, uh, Polly. And
1: you. Lovely. And
0: I'm sure we'll, we'll meet up again at some point. Bye. Well, that was Polly Puller, and that brings me on to Nature Reserve of the Week. And this week, I'm going to do Lock in In Gaelic, Loch Dorb means lock of trouble, and there's been certainly a lot of trouble at that lock over the years with various civil wars and wars against the English. Although on wiki it says lock of minnows, uh, which is interesting because minnows are an introduced species of Scotland, so I think that's one of those kind of wiki facts that you don't really want to listen to. However, it does earn that name because the lock is full of minnows, as well as wild brown trout and pike, which were introduced there as well. It's around 6.5 miles northwest of Granton-on-Spey, and it is a must for any wildlife photographer in the Highlands. One of my favourite things about this location is that you can take some fantastic images without even leaving your car. Now I know that sounds lazy, but the wildlife there is used to cars, so it doesn't disturb them. And with the Scottish weather being temperamental at best, this is a great place to go when the weather is a bit shit and to keep dry in the car. Because the road goes right up against the lock and right up against the heather, you are incredibly close to many different species of wildlife and you can get some decent shots with around a 300 mil or so is ideal. Depending what time of year you go there'll be different things to photograph. In the summer you stand a good chance of seeing black-throated divers. These are protected so be aware you can't go chasing them around but if you're parked safely by the lock there's no reason you can't poke your binoculars or a camera out for a quick shot of one passing by. There's also lots of waders in the area, and a good colony of common ghouls as you enter the area. Birds of prey like hen harrier, buzzards, even eagles have been seen. And although it's not hilly, the odd mountain hare turns up as well. But by far the biggest attraction for hare is red grouse. It's chock full of them, and you can get some fantastic images of these game birds, whether they're displaying earlier in the season, whether it's very wet and windy and get more dramatic shots or going around in the snow, this is the place to get shots of red grouse in the Scottish Highlands. Now it's not a nature reserve in the strictest sense, so pretty much it's a road you drive around, that's it. There are no facilities here. So again, this is more of a hardened photography place. Bring all the things that you need. There are little pass areas that you can go along because most of it's single track. But there's passes every few metres, so it's not too difficult if there's another car coming along. But it is well worth a visit. You could spend the whole day there, but it's one of those places that you can spend a decent morning and probably come away with some really nice images. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I will catch you in the next one. Cheers.